The Seattle Seahawks are coming off a monumental season-opening win over Russell Wilson and the Denver Broncos Monday night, making a statement about the new era in Seattle and claiming sole possession of first place in the NFC West in the process. ESPN's Brady Henderson joins us to break it all down. Let's light them up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with my delirious producer, Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? Feeling delirious. How did you know? How could you have possibly guessed? I haven't slept in 48 hours. I'm wired, man. How are you? Seriously, man. What a game. I'm still buzzing. I mean, you and I were kind of having this conversation. I was having this conversation with other people, but have the vibes ever been higher after a regular season win for the Seahawks? I think that maybe, you know, end of 2012, beating the shit out of the sure. 49ers is probably the the apex of that feeling, but this was pretty close to that, right? I was going to say beating the Harbaugh era 49ers, some of the wins that they've had. On Jimbo's birthday, no less. Yeah, yeah. You know, some of these games where they've clinched the playoffs, um, thinking about beating the Rams at the end of the season a couple years ago. But yeah, generally speaking, this is, I mean, certainly as big as it gets on week one. Everybody wanted that. The whole stadium wanted it as everybody was alluding to. It was rocking like it hasn't since, you know, 2014, 2015. The press conferences were just banger after banger from everybody. Yeah, man. It was just... I mean, I think the most telling thing for me was that Pete Carroll was not hiding how much this win meant to him. You know, he's, he's someone that's jacked and pumped after every win, of course, but this one, he, you know, he was asked the leading questions and he didn't shy away from it. You know, he didn't say anything directly about Russell Wilson, but he said things like, I'll let you guys figure out why this one means so much and and stuff like that. So, uh, it, it was clear this meant a lot more than just winning one game to the guys in, in that building. And I want to keep going on about the game because it may end up being the game of the year for Seattle, but I want to loop in our guest and get his thoughts on the Monday night thriller. He is a man who is intimately connected with the Seahawks through his work at ESPN. And he's the author of the bombshell article that dropped last week, detailing the road to divorce between Russell Wilson and the Seattle Seahawks. I am absolutely thrilled to introduce Brady Henderson. Brady, thank you for coming in. Yeah, you bet. Thank you for having me. You know, Jackson, you and I have a kind of a connection to Bellingham. I, I, I went to Western up there, so I was there a little over a decade ago, and I know that's uh, that's where you're from, right? Yes, sir. Special place up here. I've tried leaving a couple times. Keep coming back. It's tough to leave. Tough place to leave. Yes, sure. sir. Sticky place. Absolutely. Well, we're going to talk plenty about the Broncos Seahawks game, but before we do, you shed some remarkable light on the biggest storyline in the NFL offseason. And for those listening, if you haven't read Brady's article on the events leading to the Wilson trade, make sure you do because it may very well be the most illuminating insight into it yet. Uh, Brady, tell me what you can about your process in unearthing those behind the curtains details and just how long you've been working on that story. Sure. Well, I mean, really, some a lot of the reporting in there, some of it, you know, goes back to gosh, I don't know, five years ago when I started at ESPN uh, in 2017. So. Uh, certainly, there was a lot of reporting done uh, over those years and, and after the trade um, just to kind of dig into the why of it. And, um, you know, my goal for the story was one of them was to to just tell it, to tell why both sides wanted to move on. And 
uh, really to explain that this was a mutual decision. This was not just a case of Russell Wilson wanting out and the Seahawks not being able to convince him to stay. Um, you know, the Seahawks very much had their reasons for doing it. And it was no secret that there was a, a rift there. Um, anybody who has covered the team was aware of that. The athletic did uh, what I thought was a really good job of yes, they um, did. Yeah, illuminating that a year or so ago. And so my goal was to, was to just flesh that uh, angle of the story out with some of my reporting um, and also to really, um, I think, I don't want to say reveal, but really explain what was the lesser known uh, factor in that trade, which was that the Seahawks uh, thought he was a declining player. And mm-hmm. you know, the example that I keep going back to is um, look at what happened in Green Bay. And that was a situation between Aaron Rodgers and the Packers that was, uh, at least from afar, um, and I'm, I think the people who cover that team would tell you the same thing, that that was toxic. And that was maybe a, a, an even more untenable situation or untenable looking situation uh, than the Wilson situation in Seattle. And yet the Packers and Aaron Rodgers made it work. Why did they do that? I think it has a lot to do with the fact that he has won MVP for the past two seasons. Um, so I say all that to say that if the Seahawks really wanted to make this relationship with Wilson work, they could have, I, I don't think that it was entirely beyond repair. It was certainly would have been difficult. Uh, it would not have been easy by any means, but, um, my point in all of that is that they had their reasons for moving on from him. And a big one, as the story explains, is that they thought he was in decline and simply did not think that um, he was going to be worth the money that they were going to have to start paying him next off season. So for all of the, um, you know, very true, you know, uh, parts about the rift um, and just how difficult the relationship had become, you know, at the end of the day, this was also a football decision. I'm glad you brought up the green Bay part of this because tension between a team and a quarterback between a coach and a quarterback this is not new you know these are the two most prominent members of just about every team in the NFL and you get a lot of ego that goes with that and you've got people who want to try and win different ways I think that was definitely a subplot in this with Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson but there are also ways forward I I do think it's worth keeping in mind it's really rare to see one coach and one quarterback together for 10 years. You could probably count the number of times that's happened on two hands over the last 30 years. And, you know, when you step back and look at it as a whole, it kind of makes sense that it that it ran its course. But the thing that I appreciated most about your piece was you did focus on the way that the team saw Russell Wilson, the player. Because I think for a long time, this story has revolved around like a personality clash or... um game plan clash between the two and in reality maybe the biggest thing was we don't want to give a quarter of a billion dollars to someone we feel is on the back half of their career Mm -hmm. yeah and all of that you know personality stuff that that all of that is true and and i think you know the the stuff that pete carroll said uh, on the radio uh on tuesday um kind of raised a lot of that stuff anew talking about how important you know, that win was to a lot of the former Seahawks, you know, guys who were on those 2013, 2014 Super Bowl teams. Um, I thought it was fascinating what he was saying, not because we didn't know it, just because he was um, sort of verbalizing it, you know, and, and he was sort of saying it without saying it. Uh, but talking about how much it meant to those guys, Richard Sherman, he, he didn't name those guys by names, but 
you know who I was talking about, all, all, all yeah. of the guys who were there um, and really seeming to be very much invested in that game. Um, you know, you see a, a, you see a player here or two uh, at a game, but you've, I've never seen that many of those guys there. Oh yeah. And they showed out for it. They man. certainly did. Yeah. It was an alumni I, event. I really like um, <laughs> Mina Kimes had a line about how it was basically like the, the meme of that guy showing up to his haters funeral or right. something like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, yeah, my, I guess my point all there is that all of that, the personality stuff uh, that Seth Wickersham detailed a few years ago, that stuff was very real. But um, I think the trade, as you were saying there, it, it was, it was more about other stuff and, you know, certainly some of the, you know, personality stuff. I think Russell's personality kind of plays into it in the sense that um, he is a very ambitious person and he has very much set these lofty, very lofty goals for his career. And um, I'll tell you a story, I guess, you know, getting to cover Wilson for 10 years means I've had a lot of opportunities to write stories and to really dig into who he is as a person. And one of those stories I did was uh, a couple years ago, and it was a story about how his late father, Harrison, had really shaped him. And the anecdote from that story that sticks in with me the most um, was it was a few months before Harrison passed away in, I think, 2010. And he was in the car with Russell's older brother, Harry. And he told Harry he basically was lamenting to him and regretting how he hadn't accomplished more in life. And mind you, this was a guy who had an Ivy League education. He was a two-sport star uh, at Dartmouth. He went on to law school, um, graduated wow. law school, and then went on to have a very successful career as a lawyer raised an incredible family with three, you know, very impressive children. So he had a comp, you know, by any stretch, by, by anyone's definition, that would be a, just a hugely successful life. And yet he had set such a high bar for what he wanted to accomplish that he didn't feel like he has done enough. And I think Russell Wilson in very much the same way has set this incredibly high bar for what he's wanted to do in the NFL. You know, before he even got to the NFL, he was talking about wanting to win three Super Bowls. Um, so that just gives you an idea of, of how high he has shot. And that was a big factor in all this because as much as he already has accomplished, he didn't feel like the Seahawks were putting him in position to reach his goals. And I think, you know, the, the legacy piece is a huge piece of this. I think a lot of people would be completely satisfied with the legacy that Russell Wilson has already built and, and was continuing to build, you know, a Super Bowl um, nine, whatever it is, nine Pro Bowls. You know, he's probably going to be in the Hall of Fame if he retired today, or at least he's he's on that track. You know, a lot of other quarterbacks, I think most other quarterbacks, wouldn't get as restless as he was just because they wouldn't have set that same high bar for themselves. When you have a player on your team, especially the most prominent player on the team, who is so unabashedly focused on his own legacy, does that rub the locker room the wrong way. I mean, I, we know that it did early on, but there is a case to be made that this was not Russell Wilson's team until about 2016 in the last five or six years. That's been his locker room. That's been his franchise unquestionably with these new guys that have come in since the LOB and Doug Baldwin, Jermaine curse, golden Tate, Marshawn Lynch all moved on do you get the sense that they were picking up that maybe this guy's more into it for himself than for what we're trying to do? You know, I, I have not gotten that sense that, that the same issues that 
were present, you know, or on those Super Bowl era teams uh, were still issues today. And I think that there was just so much, there were so many factors in, in all of that drama from earlier in his career. And again, Seth Wickersham, if anybody hasn't read it, the story's a few years old now, yeah. but it, it was yeah. just one of the most incredible pieces of journalism, of sports journalism I've ever read. Um, and it really detailed how many major factors there were. Um, one of them was, the, you know, it was a Super Bowl. So you're talking about some very high stakes here and guys feeling like they should have won two Super Bowls. Another factor in there was the personalities at play. And these were, you know, I think the guys who had the biggest issue with Wilson and, you know, all of the fame, all of the attention that he was getting um, and the feeling as though, you know, Pete Carroll wasn't holding him to the same level of accountability as the defense was holding themselves to. You know, a lot of those guys were the alpha male personalities, you know, and, and guys that just may be more inclined to take exception to things like that than guys who just aren't wired that way. So that was very much, I think, a product of the personalities at play. And again, the stakes of, of coming up that short on that stage. And I just don't know. I mean, that stuff was very real and those guys felt very strongly about that. Uh, but I don't know if, if that has been the same. Um, I don't know if that issue has really been the same just because the players involved haven't been the same and the circumstances haven't been the same. Sure. Okay. Well, that's good clarification there. And I do want to pivot to the game, but last question before we do, how different is the energy with the Seahawks right now? And what would you attribute that to more than anything else? It is different. Yeah. And, you know, I, I just think as, as we, you would expect when you talk about two of the franchise cornerstones not being in there and the fact that they are going younger in a lot of spots, um, I think that people in the building for as much, you know, consternation as they have had about God, what is the quarterback situation going to look like without one of the best guys in the NFL, the guy who's been there for the past 10 years. I, I do think that there are a lot of people in the building who are, um, who are relieved, I guess, in a sense to no longer have to deal with that drama that had been hanging over the organization for a few years now. Um, and that's really the people who had to deal with, who really had to deal with it, you know, um, who were really involved at the heart of that situation. And so um, there's, yeah, there's, there's just kind of a sense of, of renewal. And, and, you know, again, a lot of that is what I picked up before they even played a game. So, um, you know, it's, I guess, take that for what it's worth. It's sort of like every off season, I guess you sort of feel that way just because there's turnover inevitably. Um, but it is, it does kind of feel like a different vibe for sure. All right. Let's jump back into the game itself. Quarterbacks is the main topic of discussion for most teams in the NFL, but that's especially so with Seattle this year. Give me your thoughts on the game Geno played and how he stepped in the void that the absence of Russell Wilson has left. Boy, Geno was really good, and it reminded me a lot of that Jacksonville game. Remember, he started something like 12 for 12 or 13 for 13 in that game too. Um, and I thought he did a number of things well. The obvious one was that he avoided the killer mistake. Remember in those, um, you know, it was he went one and two, and then also they lost in the the Rams game when he took over in the second half. And really in two of those games, or, or three of those games th that they lost, um, he had a chance. You know, they were right in it. He had played well enough to, to put them in position to win, but just couldn't make that play at the end. Um, yeah, had some late turnovers in those games. Yeah, yeah. There was the the interception against the Rams. It wasn't entirely his fault because, you know, the receiver slipped. And then he had the the fumble where he didn't do a good enough job of taking care of the ball against Pittsburgh uh, when they had a chance to, to lead a game-winning drive there. 
So he did a really nice job of, of avoiding that killer mistake. I think he also did a nice job, not all the way, but in some cases of stepping up in the pocket to avoid pressure. That's what he did on the touchdown pass to Will Disley. It's uh, what he did on that, I think, 14-yard scramble run um, in the second half. And I think the, the the interesting point there is that, you know, going back to the idea of, of Russell Wilson um, and people in the building feeling like he was declining, you know, one of the things that I heard um, that they felt like he was doing more of was, you know, when he would face pressure, he would kind of squat and then try to escape out of the, the, the backside of the pocket and, you know, you would see him do that early in his career when he was quicker and, and he would, you know, he would, a lot of times, most of the time he would escape and he would get out and he would make a big play, but they just felt like him trying to escape out of the backside. That was, you know, the success rate on those attempts was kind of going down and, and what used to be a big play for the offense ended up, you know, a lot of times being a, a bad sack because he was retreating as opposed to stepping up in the pocket. So you saw Geno Smith do a nice job of that a few times, as Pete Carroll has mentioned, there were a couple times where, you know, I think on the two sacks that he took, he could have done a better job of that. And he, I think he mentioned specifically uh, the sack where Charles Cross got beat that, you know, that pass protection should be good enough because he gave the quarterback room to step up and, and he wouldn't have been sacked if he had stepped up. So um, all in all, you can't expect a guy to be perfect. And you can't expect any quarterback to be perfect, let alone a guy who's, you know, making his first opening day start since 2014. But that was really as, as good of a performance as you could expect from Geno Smith. And I think maybe it's, maybe it's hope that, um, you know, this whole season isn't going to be the, the type of slog to a double digit losses that everybody has assumed it will be. It, it's one game, so you can't read too much into it, but um, I just thought it was very encouraging overall. Yeah. You mentioned that, you know, no quarterback is perfect, but Geno was pretty damn close in the first half. Uh, it was 17 of 18. I think it was 164 yards. He had the two touchdowns. Uh, no turnovers. They scored 17 points. Probably would have had more had he not slipped on the fourth and short inside the 10. I mean, they were rolling, rolling, rolling. But just like in the second halves of, I think, every one of his starts last year, uh, kind of petered out in the second half. Um, he was just 6 of 10 in the third and fourth quarters for 27 yards. They obviously didn't score any points. He did almost lose a fumble. I mean, granted, it was a blindside hit. But if Charles Cross doesn't jump on that ball, it could be a very different story. Is Smith, in your eyes, capable of making the types of in-game adjustments necessary to deliver four quarters of really good football? Yeah, I, I just think it's going to come down to, you know, is he going to be able to make that play at the end that, you know, he wasn't able to make last season? And, you know, I just look at this, I look at the quarterback situation and I look at the team in general, you know, I'm sure you guys are aware of sort of the the national narrative or the the narrative from afar about how the Seahawks are in a complete rebuild and they're going to be terrible this season. And obviously that ignores the fact that a lot of the moves they made this offseason were not moves that a, a totally rebuilding team makes. You don't go out and re-sign Quandre Diggs for $40 million or sign Uchenna Nwosu for $20 million, re-sign Will Disley, all that. So, you know, this is, I think people just, assumed that from afar because they traded Wilson and they released Bobby Wagner. My point in all that is that I actually think that they've got a decent roster outside of the quarterback situation, which is obviously the big question mark. And I just kind of look at this team and see a team that is going to be good enough to be competitive in a lot of games and to stay in a lot of games late 
And the question is, are you going to have a quarterback who can make that play at the end and, and do what Russell Wilson did so often, which was, you know, lead game winning drives. And, you know, again, we go back to last season when Geno Smith was not able to do that. You know, he was brilliant in the Jacksonville game, granted against a, a bad Jacksonville team, but you know, that game was over by halftime. Um, so the big question is, is he going to be able to, um, to really make that play with the game on the line, just because I, I think that situation is going to present itself quite a few times this year. Yeah, no question. And, and we've talked a lot about what you're saying uh, on this very show, that this is a retooling that we're not going to know how successful it is until they find the next quarterback. And even that could take a couple years to kind of figure out if the next guy is the guy. But you're right. I mean, the thing that told me more than anything, and this is not me as a fan of the Seahawks saying, oh, no, they're not rebuilding. I, I, I was half expecting that to be the case. But when Quandre Diggs decided to resign, like right at the beginning of free agency, you know, an older safety at the top of his game uh, and, and to see the team commit to that, that told me that everything else, every other domino that falls after that is about getting back to the top as quickly as possible. And the thing is, this is not Major League Baseball. You can turn things around really, really fast in the NFL. And I don't think Pete Carroll has it in him to just flush a season or two. You know, he he wants to win all the time. I mean, everyone does, but I mean, it it is coming out of his pores, you know, that he wants to do that. And I think that Gino, Gino gives me a lot of hope that he's a really good bridge quarterback, that he can keep the team competitive enough, long enough that these guys can really believe that they can win games. Because I think a lot of times we tend to look at things just in terms of draft capital, like the more games you lose, the better. But I think losing leaves scars on organizations. There's a reason that a lot of teams draft at the top of the draft year after year after year. And it's important to win. It's important to be competitive. It's important to believe because you've done it that you can come through with the big play when you need to. And, and that's what Seattle did in this game. And I think it was so important for them to win this game because it does signal that we can win without rust, that this team is good enough to beat other good teams. And I think the downstream effects of that could be huge for these guys. Yeah, and, I, and I've never heard it, it described that way about leaving scars, but I think that is the perfect way of explaining it. And it's probably not a coincidence that, you know, look at teams like Jacksonville who have picked, uh, or I guess it was Cleveland that picked, didn't they pick number one two years in a row? Yeah, and, and Jacksonville had the number one overall pick last year. We'll see. I mean, I, they don't look like a team that is, you know, suddenly going to see its fortunes, you know, completely flip. And so, yeah, the, I mean, you know, it's really hard. It, it, it's easy to, to have – it's not easy, I should say. It's not impossible to, to go from, you know, fourth place in the division to winning the division. I think it's really hard to go from a season where you tank um, even – yeah, you know, if you're just you bottom out completely and you get the number one pick, that doesn't mean that you're gonna totally, you know, fix everything, right there. Totally. And so, yeah, I, I think that's a great way of putting it. And you know, look, even if the Seahawks have a similar season to what they had last year, where they, you know, what did they go seven and ten last year, um, you know, they're not gonna end up with the number one overall pick. But remember, they've got an extra first and an extra second from the Wilson trade, um, 
and you know if they go seven and ten, that probably gets them something around the tenth overall pick, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of where they picked in the first round this year. And so, um, with the with all that draft capital, I mean, I think that would allow them to move up almost as far as they might need to in order to get their quarterback. And so, I don't think that is a huge concern about this feeling of sort of being in in kind of that no man's land, you know, where a lot of times when you finish eight and eight, or I guess now it's eight and whatever, seven and whatever. Um, that's not really a good place to be because you're kind of, you're kind of stuck in the middle. Uh, but with the extra draft capital, the Seahawks already have, I, I don't think that would be the worst case scenario. And like you said, you know, you would also avoid that just bottom out season that, as you said, and I think you put it really well that I think that can leave scars on an organization. Yeah. And it shouldn't be overlooked that this win also improves their draft position, right? right. <laughs> like if you're going to win yeah. one game, beat the team that you've got their first and second round picks next year, because I don't think the Broncos are the bills or the chiefs. Most of the NFL teams are going to finish within four games of each other. And an extra loss can move you five, six spots in both the first and second round next year. And that that's huge, you know? So this win is going to reverberate, I think, in a lot of ways for a long time. That's that's why everyone felt it so much beyond just the Russell Wilson stuff. I mean, this this was a trajectory-defining win. And I, I hate to put too much weight on single games because the NFL is wild. And the way we feel about a team changes so much over the course of most seasons. So, um, you know, in that regard, a win is great. Typically, in the grand scheme, it's not a huge deal. I think this was a huge deal. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the quarterbacks. What else stood out to you as you think back over that game? Um, just how loud it was. And, and, and you talked about this in the open. But um, I I know I am I can be a kind of a prisoner of the moment and maybe some recency bias at play here. But that was as loud as I can remember it being uh, in a while. And, yeah. you know, every – it seems like – Every now and again, there's a big play where it gets so loud that the press box at Lumen Field shakes, and I think it probably happened four times in that game. Um, so that's really one thing that stood out, just the atmosphere with the flyover and the booing. Like that was, um, that was just that's something that I will remember for a long time. That's one of the most uh, exciting games that I've covered. In terms of what happened on the field, you know, I was just writing about it a little bit because um, we talked to Pete Carroll and talked to Cody Barton today, but the, the place that Cody Barton made, especially that play at the end, um, I don't think you can overstate how significant that play was yes. to the game where he sniffs out that screen pass on first down um, and, and drops Javante Williams for a four-yard loss. Uh, if you go back and, and watch that and realize how much green grass was open behind him there, if he doesn't make that play, um, then, you know, that game probably ends in a different outcome. And there's really, when it's a one point game like that, there's, there's a lot of plays like that. There's a lot of decisions and moments there that could really change it. And we could easily be talking about, um, you know, a, a two point Seahawks loss there, but uh, that play by Cody Barton was, it was really good. And, and Pete Carroll thought had a good line about it where he said that that was a KJ Wright play. And of course, KJ Wright, you know, was dubbed screen master during his yeah. time in Seattle because he was so good at sniffing those plays out. And uh, that reminded Carol of KJ Wright. It was a KJ Wright play. I'm glad you mentioned that because were you guys aware that apparently it's legal in Colorado to gain yardage on screen passes? <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing. I had no idea. 
maybe that's just a Washington rule. That's been one of the one of the big head scratching um, things in covering the Seahawks is why why screen passes have not been a bigger part of their offense uh, because they have had running backs who can catch, and they've had you know pass protection issues that are well documented, and so it would seem that those two would go hand in hand. Like that's a really good way to slow down a pass rush is to uh, is to run screens. I'll, I'll give you a quick little tidbit. This may be known, but um, in 2018, in that draft, uh, there was a lot of momentum in the front office or just in the building in general to draft Nick Chubb. Uh, and they were going to do that from everything I've heard. They, they were, that was the plan. They were, they were going to draft Nick Chubb. They made a late switch uh, to Rashad Penny, like very close to the draft. And one of the big dissenters on Chubb was Brian Schottenheimer, who, of course, had coached him for one season. He was the OC at, at uh, Georgia when Chubb was there. Sure. And his concern was that Chubb was not much of a receiver. Like, he wasn't going to be of much use on third down because uh, there was questions about how, how good of a receiver he would be. And, of course, the the irony of that is that, well, you don't really throw the ball to running backs anyway, so what does it matter? That's, but, um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that's just uh, kind of an interesting bit of history there, but. You know, I don't know. I guess that I mean that this, they still would have been better off with Nick Chubb, obviously. But the way the shot pennies kind of come on, it it does change the way you look at that decision at least a little bit. I think. How do you uh, how do you guys think the rookies fared in this game? Because they really uh, threw some of these guys into the fire right away. Yeah, Mike, I'm glad you asked about that because the next thing I was going to talk about were the corners and the tackles. You know, Seattle threw out Tariq Woolen, Kobe Bryant, Charles Cross, and Abe Lucas at four of the most important positions in football. I thought they held up pretty well. I thought Tariq Woolen especially was excellent. Brady, what was your impression? Yeah, he had the uh, the, the couple of penalties there. And, you know, I thought Clint Hurt had an interesting take on, on that today, which is that, you know, he is fast enough to keep up with any receiver in the NFL. And he doesn't really have to get handsy like that because he was right there. And, um, you know, that's just it's just kind of a classic, I think, rookie mistake where a lot of young cornerbacks, you know, this was one of Trey Flowers issues uh, when he was when he was playing early in his career is he would be in position to make a play on the ball. But at the moment of truth, he would just kind of panic a little bit. And that was a big reason why they, they made that trade for Quentin Dunbar, just because they didn't feel like Trey Flowers was didn't feel like they could trust him enough in coverage just because he kept sort of at the moment of truth, he just, he, he kept panicking. Um, and I, that's probably no surprise that you're talking about a, a fifth round rookie who hasn't played a lot of cornerback um, that he's maybe not totally comfortable in that moment, but that seems like something that is very fixable, especially when you've got a guy that, that has the physical tools that he does. So, um, but yeah, big picture, I would not have thought that they would have, would throw um, Tariq Woolen out there. And also Mike Jackson, who's, He's a little bit older, but he has not started very many. I don't. I, I believe that was his first start. Um, so that's just. I guess it's surprising, but it's also kind of a classic Pete Carroll move, just to to roll with two really young, inexperienced corners when you're playing Russell Wilson. And um, sure. for as much as I figured Russell would would go after those guys, um, I thought they held up pretty well. Now Kobe Bryant, he had the very forgettable play. Um, where you know he gets beat by Jerry Judy in the slot for that touchdown, so um, some rookie moments there. But you know, all in all, there's there's a lot of promise with those guys. How'd you feel about the tackles? I I thought that for 45 minutes, Charles Cross. I was like, oh my god, did they draft Dwayne Brown again? And 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 maybe they have. I I don't know. Uh, he was going up against Bradley Chubb, one of the more talented 
uh, and experienced pass rushers in the NFL. And his footwork was so effortless. He always seemed to be in the right position for whatever move was coming his way, which is what we saw in the preseason, certainly what we saw from him in college. Uh, and then Chubb beat him twice down the stretch. Uh, but overall, I thought him and Abe Lucas played pretty well. Lucas had the holding penalty, but and I wrote about this in the article. You know, even on on the replay, he had his hands inside the defender's shoulders and Penny yeah. changed direction causing the defender to change direction without Lucas knowing. I mean, I think a lot of people get hit with a holding penalty in that situation. But overall, I, I was pretty impressed with how the bookends of the line played in their first NFL game. Yeah, and, and, and full disclosure, I'm only halfway through my rewatch of the game, so I really need to pay closer attention to those guys. But I'll tell you this, there was a ton of clean pockets in that game. And, um, you know, I thought from what I did see from those guys, they held up really well. I, I think what you were talking about, uh, with cross kind of getting beat a couple times late in that game. You know, I wonder if that was a case of a veteran pass rusher um, kind of setting him up, you know, throughout the game, like, like veteran pass rushers do and, and, and setting those guys up with certain moves. And then um, you know, you're coming back with something different later in the game because you've shown them so much and now you're going to do something different later in the game. So um, I, I can't really give you a, a, a answer. That's all that educated because I had still have to really rewatch those guys, but from what I did see and just from the clean pockets that Geno Smith had, I thought those guys held up pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. I would think more than anything, what I'm looking for this season is signs of progress, things that you can latch onto and say, okay, I see it with this guy. And, and I saw it with all the rookies in that game. Of course, there's going to be things they need to clean up. They're going to learn really fast. The NFL has an amazing way of forcing you to do that or not. And, and, you know, the mistakes that we're talking about are fixable, right? Tariq Woolen didn't get that pass interference call because he doesn't have the talent to make the right play there, right? It was just an instinct to grab at the, the last moment that every corner who's ever played football has had. But that's a coachable mistake, right? That's not a, oh, this guy doesn't have it and we need to figure out ways to protect him in coverage. Because every defense, and especially a Pete Carroll defense, is so much better when you can just trust the corners. It lets you do so much else with your safeties and linebackers. And uh, I, I don't know. I, I was just really encouraged by all four of those guys. Yeah, and and another thing I, I think is a plus from those guys is that the willingness to tackle. And you know, Tariq Woolen, he showed some some willingness to come up and, and tackle Mike Michael Jackson. Jackson. Did yeah, especially there was that play early in the game where um, he he sticks his nose right in Javante Williams like thigh pad. You know, that's a Javante Williams is a big running back. That's that's not a small guy. And so um he just he looks like a, a really aggressive player. And um I would have thought that Sidney Jones would be starting in that game. And, and maybe part of that was the fact that still he missed a lot of time with the concussion. And and I, I think that could be a fluid situation there. Um, you know, especially when you're talking about young guys that are gonna be prone to mistakes. Um, some young young guy mistakes, but um yeah, so I, I think you could see Sidney Jones out there at some point, but yeah, Mike Jackson's physicality that that really stood out. And you know, I, I've people get sick of me for citing the stat because I, I think I've mentioned it. Uh, I, I just walk down the street and I tell stop people and tell them the stat <laughs> just because I think it's so interesting. But um, and you've probably heard this already. To stop me if you have. But uh, since 1970, there have only been three teams, uh, or before Monday night, there was only two teams that started rookie tackles, rookie left tackle, rookie right tackle in their season opener. So that gives you an idea of how rare it was uh, 
for the Seahawks to do what they did Monday night. Only the third team in the last 50 plus years to start two rookies at tackle. When you mention that, I think it's also been decades since a team has forced and recovered fumbles on back-to-back possessions when the opposing offense has had the ball on their one-yard line. And I think uh, a big part of that was the NFC Defensive Player of the Week uh, honored Chenna Nwosu uh, coming in for a pretty impressive debut for the team. Yeah, man, Nwosu was amazing. I thought he was the star of the show on defense. And, you know, we haven't even touched about some of their uh, other acquisitions, but no question the biggest non-rookie performance, probably the biggest performance overall in that game was in Uwosu. Uh, Brady, did you see that kind of potential in him during training camp? You know, he made, yeah, he, he made a few plays. There was one really athletic interception that he made that was probably one of the plays at camp. Um, you know, but really the, the guy that I have thought, and, and this still could be true, this still could be the case, but you know, the guy who I thought has would be their best pass rusher is Daryl Taylor, just because when you watch him in practice um, and you can see it in games, but just seeing it up close, I think is a little different um, to me, at least the, how quick he gets off the football. I, I've said that it would not surprise me at all if he gets double digit sacks this season. So I was, I kind of went into the season with higher expectations for Daryl Taylor uh, than Yuchenna Nwosu, but I think I think Nwosu was the best defensive player on the field in that game. Um, had the sack where he showed the closing speed, getting to Russell Wilson on the sideline, uh, the pass defense, the really key fumble, uh, forced fumble on the goal line. So um, he looks like he looks like a player, and and I've said this before that he is. If you look at the deal that he got and the the per year average, it was like two years, nineteen and change uh, million dollars. In terms of per year average, that's the highest. Uh, that's the most money they've spent on a free agent under Pete Carroll and John Schneider. Oh wow! Um, yeah, part of that is obviously a reflection of the fact that they're just not really a, a break the bank team in free agency when it comes to signing players from other teams. But um, it also shows you what they think of Yuchenna Nwosu, and and you saw the uh, you saw that Monday night. Yeah, man, he was totally unleashed. I I, I want to look forward now to the upcoming game. The Seahawks were the only team in their division to win this week. Now they head to San Francisco, take on a Niners team that's reeling from really a stunning loss to the Bears. Despite last week's outcomes, the 49ers are a massive 10-point favorite in this one. Given what we've seen so far and these teams' recent histories against each other, does that seem like a reasonable spread to you? seems pretty big, yeah, especially because the Seahawks have had the 49ers number quite a bit. I, I don't remember the exact number, uh, what the what the I think they're 20 and 4 against the 49ers yeah okay so that dates back to that that would predate Shanahan but even under Shanahan it's been really lopsided and it's been sort of that weird uh NFC West circle of dominance where Seahawks always beat the 49ers uh 49ers always beat the Rams and the Seahawks whatever it is it's just it doesn't really make sense logically but it's a a unmistakable trend the Cardinals Um, are just sitting in the corner sadly yeah and the Cardinals are just (laughs) yeah they're just falling apart in the second half of the season they're a mess. I yeah, mean, let, um, let's talk about it. The The Seahawks are in first place in the NFC West. Yeah. Enjoy it while you can. I, I don't know how long it's going to last. It's Talladega Nights, baby. If you ain't first, you're last. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But yeah, no, I, I'm surprised. I'm a little surprised that the 49ers are that heavy favorites just because of that history, because, you know, there's so many questions about Trey Lance. But, you know, a lot of that history, I guess the easy answer is that a lot of that history was with Russell Wilson at quarterback and. Um, Vegas doesn't believe in Geno Smith, I guess. 
And, and it's a short week for Seattle too. That's that's true. I was thinking about that today. I was getting ready for the show. I was like, oh, you know, to be fair, Seattle is traveling, and they're doing it with one fewer day than than the Niners, you know, have to get ready for this game. These teams obviously know each other very very well, um, but they're both bringing new quarterbacks into the equation, and uh, I think that's going to create some uncertainty. I certainly think 10 is big. I was expecting it to be like four, four and a half. I certainly expected the Niners to be favored, but it's rare. I mean, to give everyone listening an idea, that's the same spread the Rams are being given at home against the Falcons. So uh, it doesn't seem like the performance on Monday night has shifted the money in Vegas very much. And, And right now, I think the betting public is certainly seeing the Seahawks as, uh, you know, maybe having gotten lucky or, or cashing in on the emotion. And of course it brings up the possibility of the emotional letdown game. It is going to be really difficult to get up for this one, the way they got up for that one. Yeah. And I think this is going to be a test of, uh, of Pete Carroll's kind of coaching chops and, and he really tries to guard against that sort of wavering of the emotion. You know, he, he taught, it just sounds like when you hear it, it just sounds like coach speak, but you really understand why he does it. You know, he always says, you know, that every week is sort of, they treat it like the Super Bowl or whatever. And it sounds kind of hokey, but um, his point is that, you know, if you, if you treat one week, if you treat that like a huge game, then, you know, they're not all going to be like that. So necessarily that means in other games, you're not going to be bringing that same level of intensity. So I think he, he is, I imagine that that sort of messaging is as important this week as it ever is. Yeah, and, he's uh, he's super fond of saying every game is a championship game. And yeah. you know, and and this is going to be a real test of that especially with such a young team. Yeah. Yeah, I, I yeah, it's it's I think this is the this is the classic test of that, you know, short week and all going down divisional opponent and everything. Um I mean, as we all know, that was not just another game Monday night and that was as emotional of a regular season win as I think I can ever remember them having. Um, when you talk about the crowd and the storylines and the way it ended, and I mean, we haven't even talked about the the decision to kick the field goal there, my goodness. Right. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so he's he's going to have to be on brand with that messaging this week, I think. I mean, let's talk about that decision. I think that's a pretty big topic, right? What was yeah. going through your head when the kicker started trotting out on the field? I was doing the math on wait, how long is how long are they kicking from? Um, and also just kind of you know. A lot of times in moments like that, I'm sort of playing catch up because I'm, you know, having to tweet something and I'm working on like a, a running game story that I'm going to have to file. Um, so, on, and you know, the Seahawks, as we all know, they just are incapable of playing anything other than a nail biting game. And so um, it, it always gets sort of difficult to really follow what's going on because I'm having to write. But um, yeah, I, I looked up and said, what the hell's going on? Why did they, wait that long to call the timeout and all that. So my, my thought on that is I can understand the decision that Nathaniel Hackett made. If, if you're just, if, if all that happened was you're at the 46 yard line and, and your decision there is do you go for it on fourth down fourth and five, or do you kick a field goal? I, I can sort of understand the decision. What I can't understand is going into that sequence with the plan to kick a field goal from the 46 yard line. Like that should never be your plan going into it. Um, for, that's a, a 64 yard field goal. 
into the open end of the stadium that is you know more difficult to kick into um you're not at altitude like you are in denver i just i i cannot wrap my head around that actually being part of the plan going into it i i could i could understand maybe in the moment where those are your only two options but it seemed like they they knew like 46 yard line was their target line i mean russell wilson talked about it afterwards i thought that was the most hilarious quote after the game by anybody was him saying he went to brandon mcmanus and said you know where do you need us to get to and he said 46 yard line left hash and and russell wilson's like and we got him we got him there (laughs) like a point of pride that they set them up to make what would have been the longest non-Denver field goal in NFL history, uh, I, I thought was pretty amusing. Uh, you know, I, I've long espoused the opinion that when you have a big decision to make as an NFL head coach, take five seconds, ask yourself, what do the fans of the opposing team want me to do? And then do the other thing. And I was begging them to take Russell Wilson off the field in that moment. And so, Mike, you asked, how we were feeling when the kicker came out, I was like, thank God if they lose on a 64 yard field goal into the breeze at sea level, like, okay, that's, that's fine. But (laughs) it was the wrong call, man. It was just, it was just the wrong call. And to be fair, I don't think most people, and for a long time, myself included, and of course I'm not going to have a full understanding ever of this, but I certainly have a great deal of appreciation for just how chaotic being an NFL head coach must be. And the sheer volume, you know, a lot of successful coordinators are unsuccessful head coaches. And I'm not saying Nathaniel Hackett's going to be unsuccessful by any stretch, way too early to say one way or the other. My point being is just because someone is really good at accounting doesn't mean they're going to make a great CEO. And, you know, Nathaniel Hackett has had specific decisions that he's had to make his whole professional coaching career that are limited to offense personnel. He's not worrying about timeout management, play clock management, all that kind of stuff. Right. And so for the first time here he is, and you could not have a wilder debut environment than what he had to do in in that moment. So, I mean, I, I give him a lot of grace in that because there's so much going on. Again, like I said, just a totally chaotic job in a massively chaotic environment. I'm just glad it played out the way it did. Yeah, and I just, th- yeah, I mean, I think of that as a, a first-time head coach, coach coaching his first regular season game, and that's just a situation that, or a decision that it's just really hard to simulate, I think, unless you're actually in that moment. And so that just kind of scream reeked of, you know, inexperience to me and, you know, good on him for the next day for, for you know, saying that he screwed it up and that he should have done the other thing. You know, yep. I, I really wonder how Russell Wilson feels about that. And, and Wilson, you know, said all the right things. He, he backed the decision, uh, backed Hackett afterwards. Um, I wonder how he really felt about that. And, you know, I, I go back to, I think I wrote about this in the story about, you know, their 2017 season finale. I remember that was the, the game against Arizona uh, at Lumen Field. Yes, I do. And it, yeah, it ended with a Blair Walsh missed field goal from, you know, 40, what, 7, 48 yards out. If you go back and look, you know, on third and third and whatever it was on third down, you know, they ran a running play uh, as a, you know, and they were still in the running play went for zero yards. So if, if they didn't gain any yards, like is, which is what happened, that would have been a very long field goal attempt with a kicker who was terrible in the second half of that season. I remember and, being incensed by that exact 
confluence of events right there. Like why, why are you just playing for, for that kick? And yes, you should expect an NFL kicker to make pretty much anything inside of 50 yards, 90% of the time. But Blair Walsh was struggling. Russell Wilson had a tremendous season as a passer that year. And uh, yeah, wouldn't surprise me. There's a little deja vu happening with uh, Russ when it, when it came to how that game ended on Monday. Yeah, and he was not happy after that decision in 2017. He he was that's from what I understand. He was not happy about that, and so sure. yeah, that was the whole point of the story. Is I wonder if if he was had kind of similar feelings about having the ball basically taken out of his hands, yep. in the same way. Yeah, that relationship is going to be really interesting to watch. Now we don't got to spend any more time on it, but you know, you mentioning that reminds me of something Michael Sean Dugar said on the show last week, talking about the way that Nathaniel Hackett talks about Russell Wilson almost like he's my best buddy and how dangerous that is, especially when your best buddy has a hatchet man like Mark Rogers behind the scenes, uh, <laughs> who's, who's going to do the dirty work from a PR standpoint. So it'll be interesting to see how, how they hash that out and, and move forward. But I do want to swing back to the 49ers game uh, with one last question on it. If the Seahawks do pull off a second straight upset on Sunday, how do you think they will have done it? Oh boy. Um, not turning the ball over and and you could probably ask any NFL reporter how their team is going to win or the team they cover is going to win and they'll say the same thing but sure. I just think that is especially true for this team because of their limitations at quarterback and and look Geno Smith played his butt off um and I don't mean to disparage him but you know he the sort of, you know it he I think they are going to have to win um they're not going to be able to survive you know turning the ball over three times because you're going to get you know 400 yards passing and four touchdowns from him so right. um, they just have to kind of play things close to the vest and so not turning the ball over um you know that 49ers game i think they know how the 49ers are going to attack them they're going to try to run the ball right at them uh, probably going to try to get trey lance out out on the edge and use his athleticism so i think the big thing as simple as it is is you just can't you can't make it any easier on San Francisco because with their quarterback situation and now with Jamal Adams out as well, I think it's going to be hard enough on them as it is. You know, uh, Vegas had the Seahawks over under at five and a half wins before the season. And while I took the over, it seemed pretty damn tenuous at the time. Two part question for you. First of all, how many wins were you projecting for this team before the season and how much, if at all, has that changed since Monday night? I think I uh, took a semi cop out and I, cause I was between six and seven. Mm -hmm. And so I said, uh, I think I said six, 10 and one. So I basically gave them <laughs> six and a half wins. I split the difference. Um, I just, yeah, I mean, I, I, part of that is, you know, they've got some games against teams that have worse quarterback situations than them, at least worse in the short term, or at least is iffy, um, you know, the giants, the jets, um why am i blanking on some of them right now atlanta does not have a great quarterback situation either um which one am i forgetting here oh detroit you know so um and, and a few of those games are at home so i think that again i just think that this is a team that is going to play in a lot of close games um and it's just going to come down to can geno smith or if, if drew lock ends up playing can can he you know make that play at the end but um, in terms of whether or not it changes 
based on Monday night. Yeah, I think I'll go seven. I think uh, is going to go from six. <laughs> you got and a half you got pushed seven. off the fence. I love it. Yeah, they're gonna they're it. gonna that game that they were gonna tie. They're gonna pull that out. I think. Last thing I want to touch on before we get out of here, you tweeted about this a little bit before we started recording. Jamal Adams. Uh, I I was heartbroken to see that injury. Um, I think he was primed to really show what he was worth this season in this new defense. You could tell he was super excited about it. My understanding, serious knee injury, potential quadricep tendon, which is historically kind of a season ender. Uh, what do you know about his injury and potential recovery timeline? Yeah, we did not hear any definitive word from, from Pete Carroll um, on Wednesday. Um, it just continues to sound though. You just kind of read between the lines and it, it really sounds like he's, it's going to be a, an injury that's going to keep him out for a really long time, if not for the rest of the season. And it, it does sound like surgery is likely. So, um, again, don't know that for sure, but that's just kind of what I've been picking up. Um, and I agree with you. I, I thought the same thing about Adams that he was really in position for a bounce back season just because of the way. Uh, that the defense is now. And, and I, if you talk to people in the building, um, one thing I've heard is that th there's people who feel like a big reason why he had such an underwhelming season last year was because he kind of became too easy for offenses to pinpoint. And the, the, there wasn't enough creativity uh, with the way that they used him. And that was a big part of what they're doing now is that, you know, those, the, the split safety looks, those guys are sort of interchangeable and it's harder for quarterbacks, I think one of the ideas there is that it's harder for quarterbacks to know which of those guys is the free safety, which of them is the strong safety, who's going to be where. Um, I think that you were going to see Adams really kind of bounce around uh, pre-snap and, and to not just sort of hover over whatever gap he was going to blitz over. Um, and the whole idea there is that he was going to be harder for offenses to pinpoint and, and the feeling among him and among uh, other people with the organization is that he was going to be in position to kind of have a season more like 2020 than last year. But all of that, of course, depended on him staying healthy. And, you know, even before this quadriceps injury, the injuries were really racking up at an alarming rate. And, and mind you, this was a guy who only missed two games combined over his first three seasons. And so, um, you know, he had the injury filled 2020 season where it was missed four games with the quad also tore his shoulder, uh, had the, um, yeah, I think there was an elbow injury in there at some point. And then again with the fingers last year and the shoulder and now the quadriceps injury. So this is a guy who was very healthy and all of a sudden can't stay healthy. It's, it's kind of hard to figure out, but it's uh it's become a, a pretty uh, concerning trend for him. Yeah, man. It's, it's, and, and I hate to end the show on a down note, but I do think it was important to, to get that update and, of course, wishing him the best in whatever his future in football looks like, whether it's here or elsewhere. Uh, just just a huge bummer, but this is a resilient team. That, that's one thing you can all, always say about a Pete Carroll coach team. Um, I'm sure they've got a plan. Uh, like you mentioned, they've had to play without him for stretches before, uh, and they're deep in the secondary. They're young, but they're deep. So I, I do imagine that they'll be able to cobble something together, and, and the secondary played really well after he left because he, he got hurt in the first quarter. They played most of that game without him and, and obviously were very, very good. Uh, Brady, I know how busy this time of year is for you. Thank you so much for coming in today. Yeah, you bet. This was fun. Thank you guys for having me. And uh, Jackson, next time I'm up in Bellingham. Mike, do you live in Bellingham as well? 
I do not, but I have, I keep tabs on Jackson all the time, so I'll know when you guys are you guys are kicking it. <laughs> okay, gotcha. Boundary Bay, that's that's where we'll go. We'll have a beer at Boundary Bay. All right, man, it's on me. I look forward to it. Uh, listen, before I let you go, why don't you tell the people listening where they can get more of your stuff? Um, ESPN.com, and uh, I think my Twitter handle is at Brady Henderson. Okay. All right. Well, in the same vein, you can find me on Twitter at at Jackson Bevins. That's J-A-C-S-O-N. Mike is that at Mike Barwin. And the show itself is at at Cigar Thoughts. You can also find us on Instagram at at Cigar Thoughts NFL and on Facebook at Seahawks Cigar Thoughts. Of course, you can listen to this show and read every article. And the first article of the season is up uh, over at fieldgoals.com slash Cigar Thoughts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts and you like the show, please drop us a five-star rating. Leave a quick review. I say this every week, but man, we are so blessed with the support that those of you listening have given us, interacting on social media, sharing these episodes, sharing the articles. It means a lot and allows us to keep building the type of momentum that we want to uh, with what we're doing here. So thank you, everyone who's listening. Brady, thank you so much for coming in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, onwards and upwards, my friends. Mm -hmm.